0: What's in a name? Can you name that play? What's in a name? Uh, That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. So said Juliet as she lamented Romeo's heritage as a Montague. Universalists ask the same question What's in a name? Salvation by any other name, any other name other than Jesus, would be just as glorious. But according to the Bible, and the one true and living God, there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. As the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ is becoming uh, increasingly ridiculed by the world, it's good for us to pause and consider Jesus Christ and what Christians confess is true of Him. Now, for, for those of you who are visiting with us This morning, I need to tell you that we're doing something a bit different than our normal practice this morning. Normally, we work our way through a single passage of the Bible, and passage by passage, we study an entire book of the Bible over the course of weeks or months. That's presently what we're doing with the book of Acts. This morning, however, we're pausing our normal series in the book of Acts to drop into our occasional doctrinal series, on the biblical foundation of the Apostles' Creed. So that the design is, is, as we consider the works of the risen Jesus Christ through His Apostles in the book of Acts, we're also considering the Apostles' teaching concerning the risen Christ in the Apostles' Creed. So this morning, we especially want to consider who Jesus is and what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, God's only Son and our Lord. The Apostles' Creed announces these truths, and we've already confessed them this morning, but but do you know what Christians mean by them? When you think about those words, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, they're, they're really something of the peak of the mountain. What's underneath them supporting those words up? What, what does the Bible teach concerning these things about Jesus that we confess? So that's what we're going to think about this morning. Because part of the aim of this series is to help us more intelligently confidently joyfully and hopefully confess our faith in jesus christ if you haven't done so already let me encourage you to turn in your bibles to matthew chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 if you're using one of the bibles provided you can find the passage on page 807 and i hope that you have found the insert that's provided there in your bulletin You'll notice a number of Scripture passages there in the bullets, and The ones that are underlined are the ones that I'm going to try and make you turn to in your Bibles to see the truths that we're looking at in the text for yourself. So that'll be a clue, hopefully, that underline will be telling you. that That's where I'm going to want you to turn in your Bible as we work our way through this sermon. Now, um, I want to remind you just a few important things about the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, as we've thought about this morning, has been used by Christians for nearly 1,800 years to confess our faith in Jesus Christ. To be sure, the Apostles' Creed wasn't so much written by Jesus' apostles themselves as it was written to summarize and teach what the apostles taught concerning Jesus. The goal was to put into succinct words a summary of the apostles' teaching of the Christian faith. And today we're looking at those words, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And what we're going to do is examine the biblical underpinnings of that line in the Creed. So we'll look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and other important passages which teach us about the person, the nature, and the character of Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Lord. And as we begin, you should know there are going to be two main headings that serve as the outline of the rest of the sermon. We're going to look at heading number one, doctrine, and then heading number two, devotion. So under the heading of doctrine, what we're doing is considering the doctrine or the teaching of Scripture that's underneath those words. And then under the heading of devotion, we're going to ask how these truths should transform our lives. What doxology, what praise should we give to God for what we learn about Jesus? Uh, And in what way should we be freshly dedicated to serving the Lord Jesus? Uh, These are the things that we're going to be thinking about this morning. That's the path we're going to pursue, doctrine and devotion. So let's dive in. First, consider what biblical doctrine this portion of the Apostles' Creed teaches. Remember that we're unpacking these, these words. This line, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, gives us four distinct but overlapping descriptions of our Savior. We, we learn something about the God-man at the center of Christianity in His name, Jesus. In His title, as Messiah. In His relation, as God's Son, and in his authority as our Lord. So let's begin with our Savior's name. And back to where we started. What's in a name? If you were to go back and read Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, then you would find uh, that question in a soliloquy by Juliet. And Juliet, she, she nearly asserts that Romeo's name, Montague, is meaningless. Right? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet, she says. But we all know that's not true. Right? Romeo, after all, cannot escape his name. And no less can Juliet escape hers. Names, they reveal who we are. That's one of the reasons why people in the transgender movement are changing their names today. Right? They they don't want to be who their names reveal them to be. The name Joseph, given to a baby, for example, reveals that Joseph is a boy. The, The name Mary, given to a baby, on the other hand, reveals that Mary is a girl. Yes, names do reveal some things about us, and rightly so. It's appropriate that they disclose something of who we are. But what does Jesus' name reveal about him? We find a satisfying answer in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Follow along now as I read and notice what the name Jesus means and why he's given that name. Matthew chapter 1, beginning there in verse 18. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Well, there's so much to unpack concerning Mary and Joseph's relationship. And were this an expositional series, I'd certainly walk through what's going on there. But right now, we're in a doctrinal series. And we need to keep our focus on Jesus and his name as it's disclosed there in verse 21. You see there, the angel of the Lord instructs Joseph that when the time for the child to be born came, Joseph is to give this child the name Jesus for or because he will save his people from their sins. Well, why the name Jesus? Well, because in the original language, Jesus, the name Jesus itself means that Yahweh saves. So do you you see what the name Jesus reveals about this child? The name Jesus reveals that this child will be the means through which Yahweh will save His people from their sins. Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Why do we need a Savior? Because we are sinners. Like Adam, we have all rebelled against God. That's what sin is. It's rebellion against God. It's choosing to live our own way rather than God's way. God has given us His law, His rule for life, and He calls us to obey Him, and yet we have disobeyed Him. We've lived our own way. And so we are under, like Adam was, under God's wrath and curse. We're made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, as we know sadly from our experience of this life, and potentially to the pains of hell forever. But in God's great love, we're learning here from Matthew's gospel that God sent Jesus to save us from our sin and the consequences due to them. So when we confess that we believe in Jesus... When we utter these words in this creed, we are confessing that Yahweh saves and that Jesus is the Savior, that He saves us from our sins. In Jesus Christ, our greatest needs are met. I so appreciate what uh, New Testament scholar Don Carson says about our needs, right? If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, He would have sent an economist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, He would have sent us a comedian or an artist, if God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. We all know he hasn't done that. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so he sent us a savior, As you note carefully there from verse 25 of Matthew chapter 1 the child was born and he did receive the name Jesus. The rest of Matthew's gospel goes on to explain just how it was that Jesus would save God's people from their sins. Jesus would live the the, the life of perfect righteousness fulfilling all the righteous requirements of God's law. Jesus would die a sacrificial death. He would stand in the place of sinners and bear God's wrath against their sin for them and... He would surprise the world on the third day as he was raised from the grave. All who turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus will be saved by him. Have you been saved by Jesus? Is he your savior? Has Yahweh saved you? If so, then you can confess the name Jesus. And we're going to unpack this glorious truth. But for now, we need to recognize that this baby, this baby boy, was born... He had a birth just like you and I had a birth. The Savior of sinners was fully human. And yes, he was a biological male. Jesus, the Savior of sinners, was a fully human male human. And this was necessary to our salvation. The Savior had to be fully man to represent all of God's people in his life, death, and resurrection. And he had to be a biological male because the first representative head of the human race Adam was a biological male if sinners were to be rescued out from under Adam's representative headship then they had to be rescued by another representative head they had to be rescued by Jesus Jesus whom the scripture tells us is the second Adam or the last Adam in 1st Corinthians chapter 15 verses 45 to 47 Jesus the last Adam the second Adam is the Savior of sinners and I know that there is a lack of trust in males these days but if you want to be saved from sin death and hell you've got to trust in the God man Jesus who was and is the only Savior the Savior had to come and have solidarity with humanity in order to stand in their place a human had to represent us before God he had to bear the consequences of our sin and so rescue us from the death, from death by His resurrection from the grave. When we confess that we believe in Jesus, we are confessing that God has saved us through Jesus Christ. And that word Christ is not a surname or a last name for Jesus, like law is a last name for me. Christ is a formal title and designation. It reveals that Jesus has taken up the saving office predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, as well as in the New, that word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. While the idea of anointing was initially a physical act, as the Old Testament develops, the idea of an anointed one or a Messiah emerges as the one chosen by God to be His instrument. So the the Christ, the Messiah or the anointed one in the consciousness of the Old Testament would be the one who would fulfill The office of prophet and priest and king. He would be a prophet in the line of Moses. He would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And he would be a king, a son from the line of David. And you you probably remember some anointings in the Old Testament. So for example, in Exodus chapter 40 verse 15, priests were anointed for service as they begin uh, their, their service in the tabernacle. But priests weren't the only ones who were anointed in the Old Testament. Kings were also anointed. Perhaps you remember that day that Samuel anointed David as the future king of Israel. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, we read this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. I hope you hear the close connection between Samuel's physical act of anointing David and the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon David, equipping him for service. This is a close connection the the Old Testament continues to maintain between this figure, this Messiah and anointed one. He's going to be especially anointed by the Spirit. At one level, that use of the physical oil was depicting what was taking place at a spiritual level. Saul was the king that the people wanted, but David was the king that God wanted. Wanted. David's, David was God's choice as the right king. And so this anointing pictures that. And again, while this idea of anointing was initially a physical act, as the Old Testament develops, the idea of anointing, or Messiah figure, emerges as the one chosen by God to be his instrument for salvation for his people. So as the Old Testament progresses, we get these increasingly vivid pictures of this Messiah, or this Christ, this servant of the Lord, and what he would come to do. In fact, the prophet Isaiah especially ties the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to God's Messiah and His work. So let's take just a brief trip through the book of Isaiah. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 575. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11 and take a look at verses 1 and 2. And as we read through a few of these passages in Isaiah, notice how the coming king... And eventually the great servant of the Lord is marked by the presence and power of the Spirit. Read Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Well, that shoot from the stump of Jesse is ultimately connected to David's line. This one coming would be a king, and he will be marked by the Spirit. So God's Messiah would be from the Davidic line and marked by the Spirit. So fast forward to Isaiah 42. Flip forward to Isaiah 42. I think that's on page 602 of the Bibles provided. Isaiah 42. And notice that once again, God's chosen servant is anointed with the Spirit. Isaiah 42, just verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Um, verse, verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and faintly burning wick He will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And we're clearly seeing, if we're thinking about the Lord Jesus, a wonderful and beautiful picture of Christ our Savior. But what Isaiah is saying is that God's chosen one is going to be marked by the Spirit. Now, flip ahead to uh, Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And that's on page um, 620 of the Bibles provided. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And when we read this, I hope what you'll remember is that Jesus quoted this text in His hometown synagogue of Nazareth. And He he quoted this text in Luke chapter 4 and He said, Today in your hearing this, Scripture is fulfilled. And what Jesus was saying as He read this text was, This passage from Isaiah is about Me. Take take a look at what we read in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon Me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Jesus said that this passage was about Him. And we really only skimmed across the surface of Isaiah. Isaiah. But if you were to do a detailed study of the Messiah or the Christ in the Old Testament, then you would find that the Christ was the one who was anointed by God, who would serve as God's prophet, who would offer himself as a sacrifice, as God's priest, and who would rule as God's Savior and King. And when we come to the pages of the New Testament, we see that Jesus explicitly claims to be the Christ. If anybody ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be the Christ, you need to go to John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. So go ahead and go there now. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. That's on pages page 889 of the Bibles provided. John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. When you get there, you'll see that Jesus is talking at a well with this woman from Samaria. And she is asking all kinds of questions. She's bringing up all different kinds of topics, bringing up the subject of worship. And she brings up the subject of the Christ. She says, I I know he's coming. And what we're about to read is Jesus is going to say, yeah, that's me. All right. John chapter four, verses 25 to 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Do You see that Jesus is explicitly claiming to be the Christ. Jesus claims to be the Christ. And in claiming to be the Christ, Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament promised in the person of the Christ. And Jesus doesn't merely just claim to be the Christ. Jesus is also recognized as the Christ in the New Testament. So in Mark chapter 8 verse 29... Jesus asks His disciples, but who do you say I am? You remember what Peter says? Peter says, you are the Christ. Yes, Jesus claims to be the Christ. He was confessed as the Christ and He was proclaimed as the Christ. That's what the whole book of Acts is about in some ways. Do you remember where we left off our study last week of Acts chapter 5, verse 42? Of course you remember where we left our study last week. A week has gone by and you still remember Acts 5, verse 42. Where we're told this, and every day... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The apostles in their preaching ministry pointed to Jesus as the Christ. So when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, we're confessing that He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's hopes and promises for the great Savior, the great prophet, the great priest, the great King. That's what we are confessing when we confess Jesus Christ. And the Creed, it not only summarizes the biblical teaching concerning our Savior's name and His title and office in Messiah, but it also brings to the fore this person's relation to God the Father. See, the creed tells us that Jesus is God's only Son. He's the man at the center of our faith. Turn in your Bibles to the account of Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. That's on page 808. Of the Bibles provided. So we read Jesus' birth in chapter 1. In chapter 2 you get the the visit of the wise men. And one of the things that Matthew is saying over and over in chapter 2. Is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And then John the Baptist. He prepares the way for the Lord's Messiah. This servant of the Lord predicted in the prophet Isaiah. And then Jesus is baptized. This is what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 3. Begin reading there in verse 13. And read through verse 17. Matthew writes... Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. When he consented and when Jesus was baptized, immediately... He went up from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased well you see here that matthew he tells us that jesus came to john with the express purpose of being baptized. And right now we kind of need to plow through John's hesitation and Jesus and John's conversation and hear the Father's declaration. You see the Father's revelation at the end of verse 17, don't you? This is my beloved son. This is what God says speaking from heaven. God the Father announces that this is his son. And as you think about the Bible, there's an incredibly intriguing um, train of thought concerning sonship in the scriptures, right? In Luke chapter 3 verse 38, Adam Is called the son of God in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 Israel is called the son of God and here we have Jesus being called God's son and Jesus of course is a different son than Adam and Israel where Adam disobeyed right in the Garden of Eden Jesus obeyed God the Father remember Adam was presented with a food test and what happened in Jesus temptation in the wilderness He too was presented with a food test. He was told to turn stone into bread. And Jesus refused Satan's temptation. And he obeyed where Adam did not. And Jesus, he was tempted in the wilderness. And where, of course, did God's son Israel struggle with temptation? Well, in the wilderness. They refused to enter the land as God commanded them, they rebelled against God. Well, Jesus, he obeyed God in the wilderness, he obeyed God fully and completely, his word. He kept where Adam and Israel failed. This son, the Lord Jesus, prevailed. He is the faithful son. He's a different son than Adam and Israel. Jesus is God's son in a different way too. He's not only the obedient son, but He's also been God the Father's son from all eternity as the second person of the triune Godhead. And here Jesus fulfills the the promise of Isaiah 41 that we read earlier. Do you remember what we read from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Uh, keep keep uh, your eyes on this idea that, that Jesus is pleasing in God's sight and and listen to what the prophet Isaiah said. He said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. Do you see how Isaiah 42, verse 1 is being played out here in Matthew's gospel? Note carefully too that we have the entirety of the Trinity present. We have all three persons of the Godhead present here in Matthew's Gospel. The the first person of the triune Godhead, God the Father, and the third person of the triune Godhead, God the Holy Spirit, both verbally and visibly confirm that Jesus is the Son of God whom they have loved and have delighted in and have been pleased by for all eternity. You see, the baptism of Jesus and the revelation that He is God's Son reveals that He is not merely fully human fully human but he's also fully God and John's gospel makes this exceedingly clear for when Jesus claims that God is his father in John chapter 10 verse 36 the Jewish religious leaders they accused Jesus of blasphemy now, now why would they do that why would they accuse Jesus of blasphemy when uh, he's just claiming that God is his father because they knew what his claim meant they knew that he was claiming to be God the son from all eternity They knew that He was claiming to be God in the flesh. And what's remarkable too is that other New Testament passages recognize that Jesus is God's Son. Flip forward in Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 27 and take a look at verse 54. That's on page 835 of the Bibles provided. When you get there, you'll you'll recognize that what we're looking at is Jesus' crucifixion and death. And some remarkable things are happening. Uh, Things like the temple curtain being torn in two, the earth quaking and rocks being split. But notice what the Roman centurion and representing, representing some Gentiles with him, notice what this Roman centurion looking on says in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. He says, uh, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of god here is a group of gentiles confessing that jesus is the son of god and all throughout matthew's gospel and really most of the gospels all four gospels are really asking this question all throughout matthew's gospel the question is being asked who is jesus who is this one who does these mighty deeds who is this one who performs these miracles of mercy Well, at the climax of Matthew's gospel, we get the answer on the lips of a Roman centurion saying, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the answer that Matthew's gospel gives to the question of who is Jesus. All of the earth-shaking phenomena attendant to Jesus' death underscores this truth. This is the Son of God. This is what we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. The Son of God died for us. And the centurion... He was certain, wasn't he? He said, truly, truly, this is the Son of God. And so the Creed, when we confess that Jesus is God's Son, we're reminded that He was God's Son from all eternity. We're reminded that He was God's obedient Son. And we're reminded that He was God's only Son. Do you see that? The the language of the Creed uses this, God's only Son. And this is only what the Bible has taught us about Jesus. John 3.16 teaches us this, right? Perhaps the most famous verse in all the Bible. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Yes, Jesus is God's only Son from all eternity. Contrary to the claims of Mormonism, which says that Jesus is the brother of Satan, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God's one and only most beloved Son from all eternity. God had only one Son from all eternity. And that Son, the Bible teaches us, is Jesus. And he is the son whom we call our Lord. So what, what biblical doctrine is the creed reminding us of when we confess that Jesus is our Lord? Well, while the word Lord uh, in the Bible can sometimes uh, be a polite way of saying sir, uh, when it's applied to Jesus, there, there's a different claim that's usually going on. When it's applied to Jesus, it often means master, king, and even sovereign God. And Yahweh. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11. That's on page um, 981 of the Bibles provided. And when you get there, you'll see that Paul in this letter, he has been exhorting believers to imitate the humility of Jesus in the preceding verses. Paul's been saying, dear Christian, Jesus, he suffered the cross, that most wretched, brutal, and inhumane torture. Why? Jesus humbled himself and was humiliated to get under us, to get under our problem of sin, to get under the punishment that's due to our sin, so that he might lift us up and out from underneath it. Brothers and sisters, Paul effectively says to the church in Philippi, how can we be so proud and arrogant and selfish as to refuse to serve other Christians when Christ has so served us? Paul is saying, Jesus is our pattern of humility. Imitate Him. And in doing so, you exalt Him by your conduct. You should exalt Him in your conduct. Because God the Father has exalted Him. And given Him the name that is above every name. Look at what Paul says there in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. to 11. Paul writes, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him. And bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what the the Father promised to do in response to His Son's work. He rewarded Him. That's what He promised to do in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, where He said, Behold, My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. You see, because Jesus acted wisely in the course of his life, because he was so obedient, because he so humiliated himself for the sake of fallen mankind, because he stooped to help those who could not help themselves, because he offered himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, because he did all of this, God the Father was moved to exalt him, to raise him up from the grave on the third day, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. God the Father exalted him by giving him a seat at the right hand of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. God the Father exalted Him by giving Him authority to judge the world on the last day. Acts chapter 17 verse 31. But also, as we see here, God the Father exalted Him by bestowing upon Him the name that is above every name. And what name is that? What name is above every name? That name is Lord or Kyrios in the Greek. In the the Greek Old Testament, commonly known as the Septuagint, That's how Yahweh is translated. So what Paul is saying with his Greek. Is that in his exaltation. This God man. Christ Jesus. Is vindicated. And declared to be Yahweh. The Lord in the flesh. The Lord of the universe. Christ's exaltation from the grave. Is a public pronouncement. Of his name as Yahweh. And of his sovereign rule. And right to receive worship. Notice that one day every knee will bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow and declare that he's Yahweh. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Yahweh. And here, Paul is taking up the text of the prophet Isaiah. He's taking up the words that Yahweh spoke concerning himself, and he's applying them to Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, Yahweh declares this, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. What Paul is saying is that this belongs to Jesus because he's Yahweh. If there ever was a declaration that Jesus is God, then Jesus is the Lord Yahweh. We have it here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 11. And this subjection to Jesus, knees bowing, at admission of his lordship, tongues confessing, it's going to be universal. What does Paul say there in verse 10? Every knee and every tongue, the redeemed and the reprobate will all one day bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. You, every single one of you in this room, will bow before the Lord Jesus. Will it be in praise or will it be in punishment? That's the question. Is Jesus your Lord? If He is your Lord, you will bow before Him in praise. If you reject Him as the Lord and King of your life, sadly, you will bow before Him in punishment. Don't reject Him. Embrace Him and serve Him as Lord. It will take place. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Friends, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, we are confessing that He is the sovereign King, sovereign Lord of all creation, worthy of all obedience and all worship. But we can't stop there. We can't confess this truth without being changed by it. Friends, this is Jesus, the God-man who's at the center of Christianity. He is our Savior. He is our Messiah and Christ. He is God's only Son. And He is our Lord. And as such, He deserves our devotion. Which is what we turn to think about in our next point. Our second point is devotion. And remember that under this heading, what we're doing is we're applying these truths that we've just considered what way should we give Jesus praise what way should we give Jesus our purposeful service that's what we're thinking about and we're going to be thinking about them again from these four distinct but overlapping vantage points that the creed gives us on Jesus Christ God's only son and our Lord so when we confess that we believe Jesus we're confessing that God has saved us from our sin remember praise is due and owed to Jesus in light of this The praise of faith is owed and due to Jesus. There there are dozens of ways we may praise Jesus. We may praise Him with our lips when we sing. Uh, Perhaps you you did that with us this morning. Perhaps you sang Jesus' praise. Uh, We may praise Jesus with our our prayers. We may praise Jesus with our, our lives as we live and imitate His life. But all of this, all of our words and deeds of praise are empty if Jesus does not have our faith. If he doesn't have our complete trust, and we have entrusted our lives to him, faith and belief honors Jesus. It tells him, tells Jesus, it tells others, it tells the world that he is our only hope of standing before the holy God. Jesus really is the only Savior. So friend, have you you trusted in Jesus as as your Savior? Have you turned from your sins and believed that he lived for you the life of perfect obedience to God the Father? Do you believe that He died on the cross for you, bearing the punishment that your sins deserve before the holy, eternal, wrath-filled God? Do you believe that Jesus took that for you and took it to the grave? And do you believe that Jesus was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be accepted into heaven and received in God's sight, all because of what Jesus has done? Do you believe that He's claimed the victory over sin and death for you? Friend, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus alone to save you. This is the most supreme way. It's the most supreme praise that you owe to Jesus as Savior. Give Him the praise of your faith. For He is honored by it. We owe the doxology of faith to Jesus. But we ought also to be freshly dedicated to Him. And as I reflected on Jesus as Savior. One of the things I was struck by was to meditate on our own confession of sin as Christians. I was struck by how sometimes our confession of sin is too shallow as Christians. In light of all that Jesus is and who He is for us as Savior, sometimes our confession of sin is too shallow. It was Charles Spurgeon who I think once said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. In light of such a great salvation, Christian, you need to more readily, honestly confess your sin. Don't justify it. Don't claim that it was really right for you to sin because of the set of circumstances you were facing. Uh, Don't excuse it. Don't confess that it was really wrong and then say, but, and then fill in some excuse for it. Don't excuse it by saying, nobody's perfect. Don't hide it and try to cover it up. For the God who sees all things sees your sin. Don't deflect. Don't blame your sin on someone else. Don't confess your sin in vague terms. Particular sins ought to be confessed particularly. Don't call your sins by the wrong name. Don't don't say that your sins were mistakes or errors in judgment. No, call sin for what it really is. Sin is atrocious. It is abominable. It is worthy of damnation and hell forever. And Christian, the good news is, is that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. He can rescue you from all of that. So confess your sin readily, openly, honestly to God and even to others and ask them to help you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Friend, Christian, don't stay long away from Jesus when you sin. Run right to Him. He is the Savior of sinners and He is eager to forgive. Confess your sin. Rest in His salvation and plead with Him for sanctification, for growth in Christ's likeness, to put off that sin and to put on His righteousness. So one way in in which we ought to be freshly dedicated to Jesus in light of the truth that the creed announces and that the Bible teaches is that we ought to more quickly, honestly, and hopefully, joyfully confess our sin to the Savior. He's been crucified for it, and He's been raised from the grave to forgive us of our sin. The creed and the Bible teach us that Jesus is not only the Savior, but that He's also the Christ Christ. Remember that we confess that Jesus is the Christ. We are confessing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's hopes and promises for God's chosen and anointed one. And, and think of how Jesus fulfills hundreds of promises of Scripture. In, in this we see that God is faithful to keep His promises. And so this ought to call forth praise for us. Our God can be trusted. He makes these promises about the Lord Jesus. He's pictured in the Old Testament. And He is Fulfilled, He steps onto the pages in the new. Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. Not one word of all the Lord's promises concerning the Messiah have failed, but all are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And just think of one aspect of Jesus' Messiahship, right? If he's our prophet, priest, and king as Messiah, think of Jesus as our great high priest. And how the Bible teaches us that even now he is interceding for his people, as Hebrews chapter 7 verse twenty. Five says Christian Jesus is praying for you you realize that I, I, I hear often from some of you that Mike as my, my pastor I'm great grateful that you're praying for me praise the Lord but Christian someone even greater than me is praying for you someone greater than the best Christian you know who's praying for you is praying for you the Lord Jesus is interceding for you Robert Murray Mishane once said if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Christian, He is right there before the throne, pleading from you. He has no distance from His Father making these requests for you. What a sweet thing that our Savior and our Messiah is praying for us. Praise God that your Messiah is praying for you. Imagine where you would be if He were not praying for you. But He is praying for you. Praise the Lord. And one way in, we, in which we ought to be freshly dedicated to the truth that Jesus is our Messiah is really by how we read the Old Testament. But we read the Old Testament and we ought to read the Old Testament with Jesus in view. When we read of God's anointed one, for example, in Psalm chapter 2, we ought to remember that the, the, ultimate, the psalm is ultimately looking forward to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Son whom we are to kiss in faith. So when we read the Old Testament, we have to read sensitively, understanding that Jesus is being pictured and prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, as we read the Old Testament, we cannot be lazy and we cannot have overactive imaginations. We need to let the New Testament guide and inform our reading of the Old. This is much what our adult Sunday school class has been thinking about these last several months as they're reading through and thinking about the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament, sometimes we find types and shadows of Jesus. But a type and shadow of Jesus is not behind every person or every event in the Old Testament. All of the persons and events of the Old Testament point to Jesus in some way, but not necessarily in the same way. So sometimes we are just looking at sin in the Old Testament and being reminded of our need for the Savior to come. Uh, Sometimes when we're reading the law, we're simply seeing what righteousness Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, would fulfill. Sometimes we're being reminded, as we read the Old Testament, of God's forbearance and patience with His people and with us. And so we need to repent. Sometimes when we read, we're, we're seeing our need to wait patiently and with hearts full of faith for the Messiah. right? Like the, the saints in Egypt were waiting for Moses, the mediator, to come and rescue them. So we wait for Christ to come and rescue us. As the saints in exile waited for the Savior to come. So we are waiting for Jesus to return and to bring us safely home to our heavenly land. Let us read our Bibles being sensitive to how the Old Testament prefigures Christ and how the New Testament reveals Christ. When we confess that Jesus is God's only Son, we're confessing that He is and was fully God. He was and is fully God. That He lived eternally in intimate fellowship and relationship to God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit. And though Jesus is uniquely God's Son, in that Jesus was eternally God's Son before time and in space, the Scriptures teach us that in time and space, we can become sons and daughters of God through our faith union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, John's Gospel, it has one of the strongest assertions that Jesus is uniquely God's Son. And at the same time, John also tells us that all who received Jesus, that is, to all who believed in His name, God gave the right to become children of God who were born not of of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. That's John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. And here we ought to praise God that Jesus was a son who was different than Adam and Israel. Again, where Adam and Israel failed, Jesus Christ, God's faithful and obedient son, prevailed. We ought to praise God because Jesus was the faithful and unique son that we might share in the blessings and benefits of His Sonship. Through our faith union as Jesus, we are received as righteous in God's sight. And we all know the darkness of our own hearts. They're not filled with perfect righteousness, but Jesus was for us and for our salvation. And just as uh, Jesus created access to us, to to the Father's throne, He has secured uh, access in prayer, which we've already practiced and reveled in and rejoiced in today. We ought to say with the centurion and with that Gentile crowd that Jesus truly was the Son of God. Our praise is owed to God for giving us His one and only most beloved Son. Think of that precious gift. Maybe those of you here who have only one Son, how difficult it would be to give up your Son. Which you should not do, but that's what God did. He gave up His one and only most beloved Son to be humiliated and treated shamefully for us and for our salvation and we have to praise God for His generosity. And if I may, I want to speak to the, the children, the youth, the young adults here for a moment. You, you need to understand something about God the Father. Your earthly fathers, sadly, uh, will, will sin against you from time to time. And in that sense, they don't picture God the Father. Uh, they give a poor picture of Him. And your earthly fathers should repent of their sin. And they should ask you for forgiveness. For forgiveness. That's what I do with my children. It's what every earthly father should do when he sins against his children. So while it's true that earthly fathers do not always reflect God, they sometimes do. When your father shows you love, when he delights in you, when he hugs you and embraces you with joy and delight and encourages you on, that's also a picture of God the Father's love and kindness and goodness to you. So don't let your father's failures prevent you from coming to God the Father, and see in His uh, love and kindness and generosity a picture of God the Father Himself. And Jesus calls us to come to God the Father. Jesus Himself uh, said that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. So children and young people, I want to encourage you to come to God the Father through Jesus Christ, God's only Son, don't let your earthly father get in the way. And in fact, if he's a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, ask him to help you know the way. Ask him to have you show you the way. Yes, come to the Lord Jesus in faith. Jesus is our Savior. He's our Messiah. He's God's Son, and He is our Lord. So, what what devotion and doxology is due to Jesus as our Lord? We confess that He's Lord. We're confessing that He is the sovereign King of all creation the head of the church and therefore worthy of all obedience and worship and we should note carefully if you have that insert in the creed you'll notice that it refers to Jesus Christ our Lord remember the creed has in view a company of believers trusting in Jesus it's true that Jesus is our Lord and that we're a part of God's people and how wonderful it is that Jesus is willing and desirous of being our Lord he died to be our Lord. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, when Paul tells Christian wives to submit to their own husbands, he reminds them that Jesus is Lord. Paul reminds them that the church submits to Jesus Christ in everything. Paul also reminds us that the Lord Jesus, the one whom total submission is owed, is the same one who laid down His life for His bride, who gave Himself up for His bride, who sanctifies His bride, cleanses His bride, and cherishes His bride. This is what the Lord of the universe stoops to do for us. The Sovereign Lord Jesus unites Himself to people who are sullied and stained by sin, where He was sinless. The Sovereign Lord Jesus loves people who are dirty and difficult, people like you and me. The Sovereign Lord Jesus Washes our wounds cleanses the garments of our souls and makes us holy by his grace in all of this He is worthy of our praise in all of this We see that his lordship and leadership of us is what is best for us That he is Lord means that he's to be obeyed without hesitation without wavering without question when our Lord issues commands We dare not question them like the serpent did in the garden. That's how we got into the mess we're in in this world. What what commands of Jesus have you been hesitant to obey? Christian, take some time to think for this week. What commands of Jesus have you been hesitant to obey? What commands of Jesus have you questioned? Those who call themselves followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus are to obey Jesus' commands. I mean, isn't that what Jesus taught us in the Great Commission? In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, didn't Jesus say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. You see, Jesus' commands are to be observed and by that, Jesus meant obeyed. And I'm also reminded of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 verse 46 when Jesus pointedly asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? If there's a glaring weakness in the church writ large today, it is this. We are hesitant to do what Jesus says. The church's hesitancy to obey Jesus' commands is a form of lip service to our claim that Jesus is Lord. Let it not be so for our congregation. Let us pray that we be eager to do what Jesus says without hesitation and without wavering. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Brothers and sisters, let us obey the Lord Jesus Christ with glad hearts. His commands, His laws are laws of love. Obedience will be costly. Sometimes it will cost us our sin. We'll have to give up our sin to obey the Lord Jesus. But we know that's only for our good. Sometimes, obedience will be costly in the eyes of the world as well. But I promise you this, obedience to the Lord Jesus will be worth it. In fact, submission to Jesus Lordship is simply what it means to be a Christian. If you were to go back and read through the book of Acts this afternoon or this week, you would find that the apostles offered Jesus to sinners, not merely as the Savior, and not merely as the Messiah, not merely as God's Son, but also as the Lord. And people in the book of Acts believed on Jesus as Lord. So here's Acts chapter 5, verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Acts chapter 9, verse 35. And they turned to the Lord. Acts chapter 9, verse 42. Many believed in the Lord. Acts chapter 11, verse 24. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Christmas. the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Perhaps what marked the church of the Lord Jesus out in the book of Acts as being distinct from those around him is that they served Jesus as Lord. What devotion is due to Christ as our Lord? We are to serve Him exclusively. Right? We worship and serve Jesus only. There is no other name by which we must be saved. We must serve Jesus unreservedly, without hesitation. We should serve Jesus diligently, filling out all that He asks and calls us to do, all by His grace. We should serve Jesus continually. For the rest of our lives, we're called into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should serve Jesus joyfully. He has good promises and a great reward for His people at the end. May Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, God's Son, and our Lord, Be pleased by the Holy Spirit to ensure that our conduct matches our confession to the glory of His name. Because what is in a name? Well, when it comes to Jesus, everything. Salvation. Messiahship. His Sonship. And His Lordship. Let's pray together.